Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. The Life Saving Station. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there once stood a crude little life saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station, so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. That little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it as a sort of club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The mission of life-saving was still given lip service, but most were too busy or lacked the necessary commitment to take part in the life-saving activities personally. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some spoke a strange language, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club, where victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership, Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life pattern of the club. But some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. But the Rafani voted down and told that if they wanted to save the life of all the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And so they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. They evolved into a club and yet another life-saving station was founded. If you visit the seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, only now most of the people drown. As disciples of Jesus, our primary task is to preach the gospel to all creation. We read this in Mark 16.15 and Matthew 28 verse 19. To put it another way, we are to go and save lives. Not that we are the saviour, for there is only one of those called Jesus Christ. But indeed, we are to imitate him. Unfortunately, we sometimes forget our purpose. We need to recover our passion for life-saving. We need to be doers of the word, not just hearers. In our modern and industrial society, is the concept of evangelism one that holds water, or is it dead in the water? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with Tony Anthony. The global church is engaged in so many important activities. 
But have you ever wondered what is the top priority of the church? We often give evangelism lip service in our churches. We talk about it often and even push people to be more mindful of it during our sermons. But rarely do we apply it in our lives. Let's join Tony as he looks at the biblical perspective of evangelism from an angle you may never have considered. What is the priority of the church? To be able to answer that question, we need to understand that we're in a war. Now, follow me through the Bible as we examine that. You know, we know we're in a spiritual war because we're told, first of all, that God, he's described as being a man of war. In the book of Exodus, chapter 15, verse 3, it says the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. We're told that Calvary, where the Lord was crucified, is described as being a battle scene. It says in Colossians chapter 2.15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Christians, we are described as being soldiers in 2 Timothy 2.3. Endure hardship with us like good soldiers of Christ Jesus. In every battle, you've got an enemy. And we're told in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We're also given in this battle a strategy to be able to fight this enemy. We're told in James chapter 4 verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We're also given by God armour, armour to wear. In the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 to 17, it speaks about the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the footwear of readiness, the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. So it appears that on one side of this battle, we've got God and the church. But on the other side, it appears that we are up against principalities and powers. So the big question that now comes to us is what are we warring over? Now, if you look at what the church is engaged with around the world, the church is engaged in so so many battles and that we're doing such a great job. If you took the church out of the world, can you imagine what a state the world would be in? I'm so grateful for people that fight against human trafficking. You know, the church is fighting to help the outcasts and people that are marginalised and homeless. Of course, everybody, we're fighting another battle, which is the battle of the flesh. It's interesting to see in scripture how the Lord Jesus said his own mission was to seek and save souls. We read in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, it says, for what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Even if a person did win the whole world for themselves, if they lost their soul, they'll be a complete fool. It's interesting to hear what other people have said about this as well. When we think about the founder of the Great Salvation Army, William Booth, he once had an audience with King Edward of England. And in one of King Edward's autograph albums, here's what William Booth wrote. He said, some men's ambition is art. Some men's ambition is fame. Some men's ambition is gold. But my ambition is the souls of men. What a beautiful ambition for a Christian to have. To have an ambition to reach out to another soul and another soul and just one more. And of course, the most effective method of all to be able to do this, the Lord Jesus Christ told us in Mark 16, 15. He spelt it out so simply, go into the world and proclaim the gospel. And this is not just a job for famous evangelists like Billy Graham, who we love so much, or others. No, it's for the audience. 
Unfortunately, many of our churches around the world, every ministry has been given equal priority. And that's a big mistake. Because while it's true that every ministry in the local church ought to have equal value, biblically speaking, not every ministry ought to have equal priority. Look at the difference between the two words, value and priority. So say, for example, we're in a hospital right now, and there's a poor lady about to die on her deathbed. You've discovered that she's not a Christian. So that means you know that she's about to go to hell. I wonder what each person will decide to do in in those last few moments with this person about to die. Some people might choose to show them some love and hold their hands or um, maybe give them a hug, get them a pillow, get them a glass of water. Other people might choose to pray. Other people might, might choose to sing some sort of Christian song. I don't know, we might all choose different things, but for me... I'm going to choose to share the gospel, not because I think it's more valuable than prayer or singing or sharing love. No, it's because it has a priority in that person's life because they're about to die and they're about to go to hell. We don't want that to happen. So there's a difference between value and priority. Very interestingly, the number one priority in the life of Jesus was to share the gospel. Actually, it was to be the gospel, to bring us the gospel. Also, Dr. Derek Prince, he says that the supreme purpose of every true Christian church, the chief duty of every Christian minister, the main responsibility of every Christian layman is to present to all who may be reached in the clearest and most forceful way the basic facts of the gospel of Christ and to urge all who hear to make the definite personal response to these facts which God requires. To this, the supreme task, every other duty and activity of the church must come secondary and subsidiary. You know, William Booth, he said, he gave this perspective on the balance between social action and saving souls. He says, take a man out of the slums, heal his body, give him decent clothes, provide him a home in the country, then let him die and go to hell. Really is not worthwhile. Billy Graham, he said, the chief duty in in church life is evangelism. Charles Spurgeon, he said, if a person is not sharing the gospel, then they're either not saved themselves or they've not fully understood what the gospel means. Dr. Mona Hooker, commenting again on Mark 13, verse 10, the gospel must first be preached in all, to, in all the nations. Well, she said, this divinity of, at Cambridge University, this saying of Jesus becomes a reminder to the disciples that their primary task is that of evangelism. And Oswald J. Smith, a missionary statesman, again commenting on Mark chapter 13, verse 10, and the gospel must be first preached to all the nations. You know, why did Jesus use the word first? He stated that the gospel must first be proclaimed among the nations. He wanted to say that before we did anything else, we were to evangelize the world first. Isn't it very interesting? All of these theologians come from different denominations, some of the most charismatic to the most conservative, and they sharply disagree on so many biblical issues. But amazingly, they all agree on one thing. Evangelism should be the number one priority of the church. Who am I to say otherwise? Now let us look at this practical example. Dr. K.P. Yohannan, who runs a terrific mission across Asia, He comments on this same issue. He says, I'm not trying to minimise the social or the material needs of the Asian nations, but it is important to re-emphasise that Asia's basic problem is a spiritual one. You see, he says that when the Western media focuses almost entirely on our problems of hunger, for example, showing all these pictures of starving children on TV, 
He says that it's difficult for Americans not to get the false impression that hunger must be the biggest problem in these countries. But what causes the hunger? You see, Asian Christians know that horrible conditions like these are only symptoms of a real problem, which is spiritual bondage to satanic philosophies. He says that the single most important social reform that can be brought to Asia is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The trouble with the social gospel, even when it is clothed with religious garb and operating within lovely, pretty Christian institutions, is that it seeks to fight what is basically spiritual warfare with weapons of the flesh. So in other words, what he's trying to say is that we see starving people in Asia and we send them money and aid and humanitarian support. But sorry to say, all this amazing stuff we're sending, people are still dropping dead of starvation every day. So all the things that we're giving surely is not solving the problem. You see, his point is this. A spiritual battle fought with spiritual weapons will produce eternal victories. This is why we insist upon restoring a right balance to gospel outreach. The accent must first and always be on evangelism and discipleship. The following is an example of how dealing with the spiritual realm first, in other words, proclaiming the gospel, is the best way to affect the physical realm, in other words, feeding poor and hungry people. With Hindu religion, the sacred cow can roam free eating tons of grain while nearby people starve. And people have the audacity to say, well, why does God let people go hungry? Well, in this example, God's not letting people go hungry. This particular religion is endorsing that because it suggests that the cow has a greater right to eat food than a human. According to those that believe in reincarnation, the rats must be protected as a likely recipient for a reincarnated soul on the way up the ladder of spiritual evolution to nirvana. And though many people try to reject this and they try to poison the rats, large-scale efforts of extermination have been thwarted by religious outcry. In actual fact, one of India's famous statesmen once said, India's problems will never cease until her religion changes. Now, did you know that rats eat and spoil about 20% of India's food grain every year? And a survey held in a wheat-growing district of Hapur in North India revealed an average of about 10 rats per household. And of one particular annual harvest of cereals in India, that 20% loss from rats amounted to over 26.8 million tonnes of grain. Now, that makes me think, how many people could we have fed with that 26.8 million tonnes of grain? In actual fact, how many rooms could you fill with that? I can't even picture it. Well, the picture becomes much more easy to uh, to understand by imagining a train of boxcars carrying that amount of grain. If you can imagine each box car of a train holding about 82 metric tons, the train would need to contain 327,000 cars and stretch over 3,097 miles. So the annual food grain loss from rats in India would fill a train that would be longer than the distance from New York all the way through to Los Angeles. 3,097 miles of railway wagon full of wheat lost every year while nearby people starve. And if you wanted to calculate how many loaves of bread you can actually bake from that amount, well, you can make 53 billion loaves of bread. What we're not saying here is that you find a starving person and you proclaim the gospel first and feed them later. Surely we should meet their bodily needs first, their immediate need right there and then. But do you not think that we should maybe progress forward at some point to their greatest need, which is the issue of the state of their soul? So ultimately, what K.P. O'Hannon is saying to us is that poverty, hunger, injustice and the like are symptoms. 
Their cause is wrong thinking, and the root of wrong thinking is false religion. Now, false religion is a spiritual problem, and to fight a spiritual problem, we need to use spiritual weapons. The greatest and most powerful spiritual weapon the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us is the gospel. And yes, prayer and intercession are also potent spiritual weapons. And also social programs have a vital part to play in the process of drawing non-Christians to Christ. In the final analysis, Jesus Christ didn't actually say go into the world and pray or go into the world and set up social programs. Actually, if you look at Mark 16.15, he specifically says go into the world and proclaim the gospel. You see, friends, if you want to change a nation, we've got to change the people that make up that nation. And if you want to change the people that make up the nation, we're going to change their hearts. And if we're going to change their hearts, we need to start planting the incorruptible seed of the gospel in their heart. Billy Graham says that I am convinced that if the church went back to its main task of preaching the gospel and getting people converted to Christ, it would have a far greater impact on the social, moral and psychological needs of men than any other thing we could possibly do. So ultimately, the conclusion is that evangelism ought to be our supreme priority. And I did say priority, not purpose. Surely our purpose in the world is to love God and to worship him and glorify him. But if we love him and want to worship him so much and glorify him, surely we're going to prioritise the things he's asked us to do. He's asked us to share the gospel. If evangelism is not the number one priority in your life, then your priorities are out of order. A second and final point to conclude with is proclaiming the gospel is a key for believers finding a life in Christ. And the enemy does not want you to use your key. He doesn't want you to even know you've got that key. And let me help you understand how the, the enemy, Satan, has stolen that from you already. If I was going to ask you now to help me finish a Bible verse, a well-known one, and I'll even tell you the Bible verse from Mark 8.35. It's the one that says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life, you're probably going to finish off, will find it. But that's not correct. The verse says, and please look it up, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You know, when we're going to church, when we're worshipping, when we're giving, when we're praying, when we're loving, we're certainly losing our life for God. But unless you're allowing the gospel to flow through your life, through your mouth, through your words, through your fingers as you're typing, you know, for the gospel, then you're only living a half a Bible verse. We need to lose our life for both God and for the gospel message. Because proclaiming the gospel can bring unspeakable life to the believer that shares it. And again, don't listen to me. Let the early Christians speak. Philip, he was stoned to death in Perga in AD 54 for sharing the gospel. Barnabas, burned to death in Cyprus in AD 64. Peter was crucified in Rome upside down in AD 69 because he wouldn't stop sharing the gospel. Andrew was crucified in Achaia in AD 70. Matthew was beheaded in Ethiopia in AD 70. Luke was hanged to death in Greece, AD 93. Thomas was speared to death in Calamino in AD 70. Mark was dragged to death in Alexandria in AD 64. James was clubbed to death in Jerusalem in AD 63. And John was abandoned on the Isle of Patmos in AD 63. And Paul was beheaded in Rome in AD 69. Why? Why did these believers allow themselves to be taken to death? It's because they didn't stop sharing the gospel. Charles Spurgeon speaks about finding life from sharing the gospel. 
He says, even if I was utterly selfish and I had no care but for my own happiness, I would still choose, if I might, under God to be a soul winner. For never did I know of a more perfect, overflowing, unutterable happiness of the most purest, ennobling order till I first heard of one who had sought and found the Saviour through my means. He says, I recollect the thrill of joy that went through me. No young mother ever rejoiced so much over her firstborn child, and no warrior was more exultant over a hard-won victory. You see, the devil does not want you to know there's a connection between sharing the gospel and experiencing life in Christ. And where do we get that word life from? Well, I get it from John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life, in Jesus. And the word life comes from the original Greek word zoe. And zoe, translated, does not just mean life. It means a life, it's a life that's real and genuine and vigorous and active. And so, in so many respects, the majority of Christians around the world are almost living the existence of a cuddly, sweet, beautiful baby. And what does a baby do? They certainly look lovable and sweet, you know, but they basically, you know, they, they wear nappies, they drink milk and crawl and they walk and they, and they grow. Now, what does your average Christian do? Well, we go to church, we sing songs and we sleep. Church song, sleep, church song, sleep. And, but it appears that that's all we ever do. We don't ever seem to cross that threshold and go out to share the gospel. My challenge to you, friends, is please remember the Lord's last command should be our first priority. He said, go into the world and proclaim the gospel in Mark 16, 15. I wonder if anybody listening will be willing to go. Even just one person willing to step out to dare to share that gospel message. Now let me pray for you. Dear Lord Jesus, I want to pray for anybody listening that you'll please stir us to action. Please help us to recapture the joy of our salvation. Help us, Lord, to become more and more familiar with it. Lord, to become consumed with it, to understand it, and to dare to share it with our lives and with our words. I pray for people to be mobilised and equipped to evangelise the entire world. I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors 